0: There's a lot of things in life that we struggle with. We look for a place in life. We're doing things now for later. When you have this notion of the last chapter, people have permission to do other things. Let's focus on the relationship. By the way, when I talk to palliative care experts, they say that a good end of life has very little to do with medical care. Imagine your favorite movie star. Would you like to get a kiss from them now or in two weeks? And most people say in two weeks... Why? Because the kiss would be a kiss. It will be over quickly. But if I'll have two weeks to anticipate, these are very special two weeks.
1: Before we start today, I should answer a question many of you have posed to me in the last year, and that is what is the story behind my opening and closing music? Well, it's the first movement of Mendelssohn's Concerto for Violin, Piano and String Orchestra in D minor, recorded by my wife Tamsin Whaley Cohen, and her sound is the solo violin accompanied by Hugh Watkins on the Ivories with the support of the Orchestra of the Swan easily discoverable on Spotify, Apple, Amazon etc and I shall put links in the show notes for those interested. I think it starts each show off with the right amount of zing and zip. I hope you agree but do let me know what you think. Now back to matters of state and it's a cracker this week on a load of BS a practical guide to the BS galaxy with me Daniel Ross. In partnership with BE Works we welcome their co-founder behavioral science leading light writer practitioner and speaker Dan Ariely. Now, beyond his numerous entrepreneurial ventures, Dan is the James B. Duke Professor of Psychology and Behavioural Economics at Duke University and has written seminal books like Predictably Irrational and Irrationally Yours, amongst many. He's a multi-time TED speaker and recognised globally as one of Behavioural Science's most foremost original thinkers. So only to say I'm extremely proud that he's joining me in between his incredibly busy schedule to talk about his half beard, tinkering and rethinking techniques to translate BS stories into the real world, how we make end of life the best chapter of our lives and questions of trust in the murky world of insurance and the more admirable world of international aid. Now, if you like this episode with Dan and me, please give me a five-star review on whichever platform you listen. And why not pass it on to a friend? Let's get right into it. Dan, welcome to A Load of BS, a practitioner's guide to the BS galaxy. It's
0: a thrill to have you here for a little chat while you're in town with the BE Works gang. I can't tell you how excited I am. I've been hardly sleeping the whole night just looking forward to this exchange. I'm thrilled. Thank you so much for having me.
1: It's a great pleasure. You're positively shaking. What our listeners can't see is how excited I can see your face is and how true those words are. But anyway, it's a great pleasure to have you here. Now, actually, I want to start by asking you about your beard. Now, this is not normally how I start my conversations, or I should say, rather, your half beard. Now, for those of you who are unfamiliar, you can Google Dan to see what he looks like. Half his face, sports hair, and the other not. And you've spoken... Widely about the origins of this. And it was, you know, a very bad accident years ago, which left you with severe burns, means you only grow hair on half your face. And you've said that carrying this look is about embracing you as you are, not being shy of your injuries and accepting asymmetry, literally and, and figuratively perhaps. I'm really interested to know the reaction it gets in your daily life and whether it's been a valuable icebreaker or you think it has provoked unusual conversations and learning about the human condition which may not have arisen otherwise.
0: Yeah, so it's actually a really fascinating topic because for me, it also shows how little I understand myself and other people. So I was injured. As you said, I was burning about 70% of my body when I was about 18. I'm 55 now. It's been a long time ago. And for a long time, I shaved the half face that has hair. And that was great. And I didn't think about it very much, but I tried to become less Non symmetrical. So that was a big part of my daily life. And then I never planned on half a beard. It didn't even cross my mind. And then I went on a month long hike with a friend a few years ago. And at the end, I looked sort of like this (laughs) half beard, a little bit less white, but you know, half a beard. And it was kind of an amusing look. I didn't look at myself for the hike because I was just hiking. I didn't have a mirror. I looked at myself. It was amusing. I didn't like it. I didn't say, oh, I I want to keep this. But it was kind of a memento from the hike. So I kept it. And also throughout the hike, I posted some things on social media. And in the few weeks after the I finished the hike, I got a few thank you notes from people who thanked me for the half a beard. It was kind of strange. Like, why did they thank me for the half a beard? These were all people with different injuries that said they were very ashamed of their injuries. They were hiding them. And they thought that this was on purpose to say, hey, I don't give a damn. I'm, I'm not doing anything to hide. Of course, it wasn't on purpose. I didn't tell them. But I decided to keep it like a public service announcement. I said, if, if there are people with injuries that are hidden and they're worried about it and it helps them a little bit, I'll keep it. But here's the most bizarre thing. It took me about three or four months and it's really helped me accept myself. You know, the half a beard is only one odd feature. I have lots of odd features in terms of, you know, how my hands look and chest and legs and lots of things are odd. But it was a journey that helped me understand myself. And here is what I think is happening. There's the psychology. Think about somebody who's standing in front of the mirror every day doing an action that is supposed to hide their asymmetry. There is something very much about this that is actually not that good, right? That it's basically a daily activity to hide the injury. And I, by stopping that, lots of other things stopped bothering me. It stopped bothering me, uh, my hands, my chest. So it, it really was an amazing journey towards self-acceptance. So now it's me and it has an effect. Now, does it come without costs? Of course not. It has lots of costs, right? There's more kids who point out and laugh. There are more people who ask me questions. You know, a little bit is okay. A lot is (laughs) just a lot. Also, I have been in the last two and some years, I've been very much been persecuted by the COVID deniers. So for all kinds of reasons, they connected me with Bill Gates and the Illuminati, and they think I'm the consciousness architect of COVID and how governments have been treating citizens, taking away rights, all kinds of things like that. And, you know, it's a long story about why they picked me and who they pick as villains, but certainly the half face look is contributing to that. There's many more pictures of me, you know, with uh, photoshopped as a villain and so on. I think if I didn't have this lack of symmetry, they wouldn't have jumped on that as much as well. So certainly has downsides as well. I can't
1: imagine it'll therefore be long before QAnon and Marjorie Taylor Greene will be on the phone uh, wondering what the hell is going on, that you might be some alien creature coming to destroy the world or something like that or some other bizarre uh, conspiracy theory.
0: Yeah, there's one video which uh, basically kind of has pictures for me from an early age in the burn department that explains that because I was so badly injured, I started hating people and I want to get as many people as possible killed. That's why I joined the COVID movement. Anyway, lots of things to say. I've, I've been very much immersed in the conspiracy theory, fake news kind of industry for the last two and a half years in different stages and different level of understanding. Fascinating, amazing topic.
1: It is. In fact, I did an interview on this podcast with a journalist from the Times newspaper, amongst other places, called David Aronovich, who wrote a book about a decade ago called Voodoo Histories, which is all about that. And he talks about the elders of Zion, amongst many other conspiracy theories over the last hundred years, which is a fascinating read, by the way, if you're interested in that subject. But we digress slightly, because going back to the subject of behavioural science in the wild, which is a little about what this new podcast series in partnership with BE Works is all about, About understanding, you know, the challenges that behavioural science practitioners face and how we encourage the wider spread adoption of behavioural science and organisations for the longer term well-being of the world's population, if that's not too grand a term. And, you know, whether we're talking about energy saving, recycling, dieting, or thinking about really intractable problems in poorer communities like sanitation, hygiene, healthcare, education... As a practitioner, how do I take the stories and experiments from books like Your Own Predictably Irrational or indeed Small Change, Money Mishaps and How to Avoid Them, a book you co-wrote actually with one of my previous guests, Jeff Kreisler, how do I translate them into my own particular context? So I
0: think there's kind of two very general approaches. Let's call one tinkering and one rethinking And one thing that I try to do with uh, people and organizations is to basically think about the phrase, what if people don't know how to, and then the how to what uh, changes. So let's say we think about money. We can ask the question of what if people don't know how to manage their money in order to maximize their happiness? If we think about work from home versus from the office, we can say, what if people don't know what's good for them? What if people don't know what they're missing? So the first thing I think that social science gives us is this understanding that our intuitions are not always correct. And we need to step back and say there's all kinds of things that we think we're experts in all the time. What if we're not What if we don't know how to eat? What if we don't know how to sleep? What if we don't know what exercise is good for us? By the way, it's kind of amazing when you start asking this question, almost everyone is saying, no, we're not that good at it. No, we're not that good at it. So I think that's kind of starting things from the big picture. And once you say, what if we don't know, then you motivate a whole direction of thinking about something better. So I see your wedding ring, you know, you could say, what if you don't know how to have a good relationship? What if we don't understand this? Now, imagine if you started thinking about that, like, what would you do differently? What would you read? What would you explore? What would you experiment with? So I think, I think that's the first thing. The first thing is not a tinkering approach, but it's the, let's identify where real gaps of understanding are, not like little ones, but big gaps of understanding are, and identify the pools that are available for us for improvement. Right now, I'm thinking and spending a lot of time on end of life. I'm thinking about the time between people get a diagnosis, a bad diagnosis, and the time people pass away. It's on average slightly more than five years. And I'm thinking to myself whether we can make that chapter the best chapter in people's lives. What would we need to do so that if people died and you woke them up somehow magically, you could say, hey, which chapter do you want to repeat? They would say that last chapter It is right now. It's one of the worst. But can we make it a good chapter or even aim for making it the best chapter? Huge amounts of mistakes, huge amount of mistakes about fear of death about how people write their wills. I mean, just as you ask the question, what if people don't know how to write the will? People don't know how to write the will. I think that's the first one. The second part is the tinkering one. You know, we can't really go ahead and think big picture all the time, but tinkering is easy. Tinkering is to look at the little things that we could change here and there to make things better. And I'll give you an example. I am actually just wrote about this. Quite a few years ago, a woman wrote to me, and she said that she was just diagnosed with brain cancer, and she was thinking about how to tell her family. And I did some projects on how to reap bandages from burn patients, take them off slowly, take them off quickly, what's the right approach, By the way slowly is <laughs> the better approach. And she looked at that, and she thought of this as a metaphor. And she said, okay, should I tell them quickly, or should I tell them slowly? Should I say, hey, I have cancer, or should she reveal it slowly? We ended up meeting and talking about it, and I didn't have a good answer for her, and she ended up adding another component to the equation, which was trust, that if she didn't divulge everything up front and I discovered it, they'll never trust her again. So we decided to do that all at once for trust reasons, not for adaptation reasons. But I think that's the second thing. The second thing is to look at your life and to say, what can I change? And have some metaphors and ideas from social science about where you could change things. So sometimes the studies are very direct. Sometimes it says, hey, you know, when spouses have a joint checking account, they end up spending less money and fighting less. Okay, really good to know. Thank you very much. Let's implement. Sometimes it's more of an analogy. You know, you don't have a particular study about something that you're wondering, but you're looking for an analogy in, in a different domain. Okay, so this is about, let's say there's this uh, uh, observation that says, imagine your favorite movie star. Would you like to get a kiss from them now or in two weeks? And most people say in two weeks. Why? Because the kiss would be a kiss. It will be over quickly. But if I'll have two weeks to anticipate, these are very special two weeks. Now, if you think about that as a principle and you say, okay, anticipation, we usually think that we want everything faster. Like we want two hour shipping or, you know, 59 minutes shipping or everything is faster. And you can say, oh, what kind of things I would actually enjoy a anticipation, that, that waking up in the morning and saying, in six months, I'll get X, maybe it can be a good feeling. I don't think lots of people would pay Amazon to delay shipping. But you get to say, okay, there's this research on the kiss and on the joy of anticipation. How do I add more joy of anticipation to my life? There's no research about you know buying gifts or booking vacations and so on. But you can say, here's the principle, where do I apply that as a metaphor for other things? So I think those are the three big things. It's about questioning, identifying gaps, direct application of knowledge, and metaphors for other domains.
1: I mean, certainly on the subject of the time that things, activities, tasks take, I have a sense that we fetishize productivity and optimization. You know, like Google Maps, for example, is geared only to look for the quickest route somewhere. Well, maybe that's not always what we want. Maybe sometimes, literally and figuratively, we want to take the scenic route. I mean, I don't imagine in your example of the last chapter of life that perhaps there's a means to create a sort of a pleasant anticipation about the last six months. Or maybe one can do that in
0: some way. So look, the end of life, the last bit, like if you say, you know, like, can we make the last week very pleasurable? no. You know, there's reality. There's reality of pain, consciousness, all kinds of things like that that are tough. And if people are waiting to die, it means that they're really suffering too much. So I don't think that's a good way to go. But, you know, there's a lot of things in life that we struggle with. We look for a place in life. We're doing things now for later. When you have this... Notion of the last chapter, people have permission to do other things. Let's focus on the relationship. By the way, when I talk to palliative care experts, they say that a good end of life has very little to do with medical care. Yes, you know, you don't want pain. Yes, you want to be comfortable. But a lot of it is that you want to reflect on life and feel accomplished. You want to feel loved. You want to feel connected. It is a time for a lot of psychology that if you think about what makes you reflect back on life and think this is a life worth living, it is about you know what you've achieved, what relationship you have, which relationship do you want to resolve One palliative care expert even told me that there was a woman that she got a timeline of how long she has to live. And she took that time and resolved social issues and said goodbye and so on. And then she got an extension. And the physician told me that she felt cheated. She was truly ready. She was truly ready. Now, I don't know how common this is and so on. There's a lot to study. But I think even if you look at the frail body, still tremendous opportunity to make things better.
1: It's an interesting idea that as we get closer to meeting our maker, a number of the social narratives which many of us live with for a lot of our lives, whether it's around career expectations or earning money or conventional achievements, the things that we often gear our lives around, they dissipate very quickly. It's only when we get close to the end, sometimes that we realize actually what's really important to us. And perhaps there's a moment of regret where we think, if I only had prioritized different things when I still had the time.
0: That's right. So when people get the negative news, they have a terrible shift. I mean, it's a very, very tough thing. Doctors don't know how to give the bad news. People don't know how to react. But you're absolutely right that that shift, when it happens, can be incredibly positive. And then the question is, why can't we do it early? Like, People who haven't spoken to their you know, siblings or kids for 20 years all of a sudden find the ability to say, this is important, let's resolve it. There's something about being injured that is a little bit like end of life in the sense that, you know, as an academic, I never thought that I'm the same as everybody else. My disability is so clear. My hands don't work very well, hard for me to type. And because of that, I really didn't judge myself according to the standard of my academic friends. It was clear to me that there were lots of things that they were doing, and they just, I just can't. So that the standards were not designed for me, and therefore I don't need to accept them. <laughs> sometimes it has good consequences, sometimes not so good consequences, but I did pick a path that was more independent, I think, because of that, and felt less social pressure to be like the standard. So there's something very releasing about being different in such an extreme way.
1: Yeah, it gives you perspective, perhaps. And often one sees the better example rather than being close to death, which is that you have a say a near death experience or something really shakes you out of the ordinary and you kind of wake up to what's important or you see what's really valuable. But I want to move away briefly from life and death discussions. I want to actually ask you about insurance because insurance is also an industry I spent seven years in quite at the similar time when you were with Insurtech Lemonade. I spent a lot of time working like you with insurtechs and large insurers trying to change. An old, tired model. And of course this is a world I think you know very well, having been, as I say, at the heart of digital insurer lemonade as chief behavioral officer in its early years, trying to turn the conventional insurance model on its head by would you believe showing trust in customers and so expecting some trust and honesty in return. What were you guys doing differently? But and, and moreover, did the strategy work at any scale?
0: So we did lots of things, right? But my side of the contribution was to say that the fundamental problem of insurance is trust, right? Imagine you have a consumer, you have an insurance company, the consumer pays, let's say, every month. At some point, something bad happens, and the consumer has to hope that the insurance company will pay them back, right? It's kind of a, like there's asymmetry. You give money, you give money, you give money. When something bad happens, you have to trust that something will happen. And of course, the insurance company has an incentive not to pay back right? It's their money. (laughs) Sometimes they think about it as their money, and they don't want to pay back. And the consumers know that the companies don't want to pay back. So they exaggerate and cheat a little bit and, you know, here and there. And the companies know that people cheat, so they make it more difficult and so on. If you think about it, it's a cycle of trust and abuse on both sides. By the way, insurance didn't start like this, right, when we had cooperative. But it developed to be an antagonistic relationship rather than a collaborative relationship. So Lemonade, the main principle was to say, let's change the incentive structure. So what did we do? We switched it from a two-player model to a three-player model. There's the consumer, there's the insurance company, and there's a non-for-profit. You join Lemonade, you pick a non-for-profit that you love, and Lemonade says, we will always make 20%. No more, no less. You give us your payment, we take 20% for our cost, expenses, and profit, and 80% goes to the pool. And you're in the pool with all the people who assign charity X as their charity, let's say the World Wildlife Fund. And we pay claims. And if we finished everything... The money is done. But if there's money left over, it goes to the World Wildlife Fund. So two very important things happen. The first one is you're not in conflict with Lemonade. Lemonade doesn't make more money or less money. In fact, you're in conflict with your favorite charity. So we've taken conflicts of interest out of the picture. That's one. And the second is that it's very clear to you that if you exaggerate your claim, you're taking away from your favorite charity, right? So it's not you versus Lemonade. It's you versus your favorite insurance company. Now, Lemonade has other elements. There's unique data. There's good relationship with customers. It's a slow process. It's a slow process. It's a very tough industry with lots of distrust. Like You can't come up with a new insurance company and say, reshape all of your opinions about insurance in one day. No, it will take some time. It's something to build trust. In general, we see lots of positive effects. Like one year, there was a snowstorm in New York and we send people an infographic about how to prepare their homes for the snowstorm. And you could say, oh, maybe people would be skeptical. Oh, this insurance company is doing it so they would save money, so they'll have less claim. No, people knew that we were on their side. They were very appreciative because, you know, when there's a claim, it's a total deadweight loss. Everybody suffers. Even if I pay you back 100% of your financial loss, it's still, you lost some things that have sentimental values in time and so on. Everybody loses. So it is working. I think it's slow. It will take some time. And then we have, I think, another trend in society, especially in the US, is getting very fragmented. Truth telling is becoming less important as a value. So there's some other trends that we need to worry about. COVID has been a very tough period when people are stressed and they feel that they've been hard done by people do lots of things on that. So lots of complexity, but I do believe very strongly, and I think the data so far is supporting it that companies should not view themselves as being antagonistic to consumers. There's a lot to gain. Like, just think about insurance. In the US, verifying a claim is about $300. What a waste, right? If you could just give people $150 more on their claim and you take, I mean, it's a huge improvement. So I think lemonade is on the right path. I think companies need to have more trust in consumers, consumers need to have more trust in companies. There's lots of Room for improving things this way, but it will take some time. But I'm very positive on the world of trust. It's not that I don't see the abuse that can happen, but I think that there's a much better equilibrium where everybody could be better off.
1: Well, you know, there's really interesting parallel research in the world of international development where it has been proven in a number of countries that by giving people pure cash handouts, Actually, the return on investment, the growth of the local and wider economies is significant. It goes against all conventional wisdom about how you distribute international aid, which is about typically having big teams and NGOs and charities which campaign and run programs and spend time in the field, very operationally intensive. Interesting research which shows if you just give very, very poor families something like 800 US dollars it absolutely not only changes their lives, but it changes lives all around them because it has a sort of a positive... on effect, and by the way, apparently without creating sort of adverse inflationary effects as well.
0: The details there are important as well. So, for example, if you just come to a family, you give them eight hundred dollars unprepared, not as good. If you ask them to set goals and you give them like little payment, make a goal, we'll give you the next one. So there are better ways and worse way to do it. Right, context exactly. But you know, having a plan in this regard is incredibly important. But yes, I think. Trust is really the lubricant of the world. When you think about how much trust you need to have in people, and when trust is eroded, we pay tremendous price for it. There's a lot to say about trust. I'll just give you one comment of this, is that one of the things I worry about the cryptocurrency world is that it takes trust out of the equation. I think what we need is to practice trust. And, you know, trusting financial institutions and exchanges and so on is not just the thing for itself, it also gets us to practice trusting people. Now, imagine you took all the financial transactions, you said, those things you don't need trust. What will happen to the rest of trust? I worry that it will get lower. We need training wheels for trust.
1: Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, there's interesting arguments about the future of crypto and what actually being a Bitcoin maximizer or following other cryptocurrency really says about one. I have to say I'm, I'm something of a bear on digital currencies at the moment. But I mean, do you think, by the way, on Lemonade that it's positively influenced the mainstream insurance industry or indeed other industries to change the approach to customer service? Or is it too early to tell?
0: There's certainly a lot of attention being paid for that. And I think companies are looking and understanding and, you know, consumer voting with their feet and moving is very indicative. I think it's actually, we talk about, you know, investing in an ethical way, but I think we need to think about ethics overall because we're kind of in an ecosystem where everybody can benefit, but we need to make the ecosystem go in that direction. And trust is one direction like this. With that,
1: Dan, let me thank you enormously for sharing your time with us today and giving us your perspective on some of the challenges that behavioral science faces and what we need to do to ensure its influence grows and hopefully perhaps its reputation remains strong. So thank you so much.
0: My pleasure. It's been a delight and looking forward to our next time together.
1: Since starting this podcast, sharing the floor with Dan was high up on my BS bucket list. I'm hoping he'll return for more early next year once he's clear on his latest round of teaching and writing commitments. So much more to delve into on the subject of trust and also the influence of cognitive technology on our lives. Next week, I welcome Clemence Quint, co-founder at Magenta Consulting to the show. Clemence and her team are using behavioral science principles to solve some of the toughest social development challenges in places like Nigeria, Tunisia, Afghanistan and Lebanon more great stories from the field so from your host Daniel Ross it's goodbye and see you next time